Good morning and uh, welcome to this Friday morning discussion on the Himalayas. On behalf of the Hudson Institute and the Observer Research Foundation, we are delighted that you could join us this morning. And uh, special greetings to His Holiness for uh, being here and for helping us uh, kickstart this three-year program that uh, ORF is uh, embarking on basically to have more sophisticated conversations around the Himalayas, um, which tend to be uh, sometimes on the periphery of most conversations, many a times romanticized in Bollywood movies and Hollywood movies, but mostly ignored when it comes to the real core issues. Uh, but as we proceed with today, I think our thoughts must go out to those who are still suffering from the aftermath of the earthquake in Nepal. And I think moments like these, in a sense, compel us and motivate us to have fresh conversations that will allow us to respond to what is certainly a, a region in transition in many ways. Uh, not only are the earth plates moving, but there are political changes, there are cultural changes, there are ecological challenges. And all of them are posing before us a series of questions that we must try and find answers to. And that is why we are here. This is the first of our events. And we are delighted that this is in New York, which is in many ways uh, the capital of uh, a globalized world. When we speak about the Himalayas, uh, many a times we tend to skate over some, uh, the impact of this, this, this largely confined geography. Um, there are about two billion people who depend on the Himalayas. There are four river systems. The Ganga river system, which uh, caters and provides lifeline to roughly 650 million in the Indian subcontinent. There is the Indus river system. Uh, another 200 million depend on that system. There is the Mekong, which is a sister river system, but dependent on the same geography as well, which has uh, close to 350 million people living off that. And then uh, the most ignored are the Chinese river systems, many of them which feed from the Himalayas or the extended, the extended Himalayan region. Close to 2 billion people uh, in that part of the world, one third of humanity, is uh, directly or indirectly uh, served by the Himalayas. Uh, there are 600 languages in the Himalayas. And there are six uh, language groups that exist in, the, in that particular region. And it's really diverse. But there are also uh, some stark realities. Some of the um, lowest income households are in that particular region. Uh, poppy cultivation, drug trade, is something that proliferates that region. Uh, and it has fed into geopolitical and political movements. It feeds radical movements, uh, the reverberations of which sometimes are felt far away. And that is, again, because opportunities and, and, and economic realities uh, are limited for many of those. So what we wanted to do with this initiative was discuss um, three changes that are profoundly shaping uh, that particular part of the world. The first is. Uh, climate change, ecology, environment, uh, the impact of man on that particular ecosystem. The Himalayas have served us, but have we served the Himalayas enough? And have we maintained that particular system uh, and sustained it for the next generation? That is one conversation we want to have, and we will have some part of that discussed today. The second conversation we want to have is on the political cultural changes that are taking place. We have uh, the Chinese who have rediscovered religion and who certainly want uh, Buddhism as something that needs to be taken to the world. We have an Indian Prime Minister 
who sees Buddhism as central to the Asian century in his words. And certainly he believes that this region is critical to that uh, Asian century. Um, we also have uh, within uh, that particular region many other identities that are jostling for space to be heard. And this is creating a complex uh, political cultural uh, situation in that particular region. And we want to discuss some of that today as well. And finally, uh, it, it cannot be ignored that the Himalayas witnessed three nuclear countries, uh, Pakistan, India, China, uh, each of them with testy relationships. And, and certainly the, the geopolitical implication of that region uh, cannot be skated over. And we will probably uh, touch on that today as well. So this is by way of introduction. Let me thank you again for joining us. Uh, at this time, let me first invite Ambassador Hossein Haqqani to just come to the top of the room uh, and Director Sanjay Joshi to also join him. And I'm going to uh, request Abhijit uh, to hand over the memento to Ambassador Hukani and Director Joshi to give to His Holiness Gualang Drupka uh, as a memento for the inauguration of this three-year initiative on the Himalayas. Thank you, sir, for joining us. <laughs> With no further ado, let me now hand over uh, the proceedings to Ambassador Hukani, who will be uh, moderating the conversation with His Holiness uh, in the first panel this morning. Thank you very much. Good morning, uh, and thank you, uh, Samir, for getting us off to a good start, albeit a few minutes late. Uh, Your Holiness, it's a pleasure to host you here in New York and at this uh, event on the future of the Himalayas. Uh, I represent the Hudson Institute and uh, I'm the director of its South and Central Asia program, which is the region that uh, touches the Himalayas. Um, and we are honored to have His Holiness the Gyalwang Drupa uh, this evening uh, on behalf of the uh, uh, director of uh, uh, ORF, uh, Mr. Sanjay Joshi, and uh, uh, the president of the Hudson Institute, uh, Mr. Ken Weinstein. I welcome all of you to this event, which will hopefully just be the beginning uh, of a process of discussion about the Himalayas. Uh, most of you who are here have an interest in that region. Uh, somebody, as I was walking in, uh, said that their interest was based uh, on the beauty of the uh, high mountains of the Himalayas. But uh, the Himalayas are not just the highest mountain range in the world. They are also the crossroads of Eurasia. Uh, it, they have uh, uh, constituted a historic trade route. Uh, those of you who are uh, uh, interested in uh, such uh, trivia uh, would remember uh, that this was the route that Marco Polo took all the way from Europe into China. It has been a crossroads of civilizations and faiths. Even today, the Himalayan region has Buddhists, it has Hindus, it has Muslims, and a small number of Christians living within that region. Uh, it also has been uh, a, a region where Chinese and Indian and European and even Arab civilizations have interacted over history. Uh, it is the source, as uh, Samir pointed out, of four river systems uh, uh, that are crucial to China, the South Asian region, and the Southeast Asian region. But now we see that it's not just the crossroads of civilization and the crossroads of Eurasia, it is also the crossroads of many issues that are crucial 
uh, uh, that need to be addressed if the world is going to avoid uh, ecological as well as political disasters. It has become uh, a crossroads, of course, of uh, competing ambitions between global powers. Uh, it is also uh, a region where the tradition of religious tolerance is being challenged for the first time in a very, very long time. Uh, it is a region where the economic and technological aspirations of countries of the region may result in creating a potential environmental degradation and an, and, and an ecological crisis. Uh, these are mountains through which some nations may want to bore tunnels to reach others for transportation, but uh, is that necessarily an ecologically sound prospect? Um, and then, of course, uh, the political rivalry that is manifesting in a, an impact on the traditional way of life uh, and the tolerance between various communities. Uh, we at Hudson Institute are always interested in looking at global issues uh, from the point of view of long-term sustainability. We look at international security, uh, we look at economic issues, but we always think long-term. Hudson Institute has had a long history of doing that. We were looking at the prospects of thermonuclear war when nobody talked about it uh, and what it could result in and how one could actually live beyond it. Uh, we were examining the rise of Japan as an economic power when Japan uh, was not deemed as such. And in that tradition, we partnered with our Observer Research Foundation of India uh, to look at the Himalayas. And we have been honored by the presence and support and patronage uh, of His Holiness the Gyalwang Drupka, who uh, represents uh, one of the oldest Buddhist orders in the Himalayan region uh, with 27 million followers. Uh, the Gyalwang Drupka, unlike some other religious personalities of the region, uh, does not have a tradition of direct involvement in politics. And as we all know, uh, as newspaper readers and television watchers, uh, people who, ha who dabble in politics get a lot more attention than those who do not. Uh, but that does not mean that his views and his understanding of that region and his concerns are, are, are something that we can all ignore. He has experience in the region. He has now made it a, his cause to try and make the whole world aware of this intersection, as I see it, of political, security, climate, and culture-related issues that have significance for the entire world. Uh, we will have discussions today in this uh, half-day conference uh, in which we will have a session on uh, issues of climate, issues of economics, and issues of culture. And then we will have a discussion on the hard issues of security, uh, the power relationships between, say, for example, China and India, and then all the other countries in the, uh, of, of the region. Uh, everything now is interconnected. So the, uh, the earthquake in Nepal affects the entire region, but so does the politics of Nepal and the rivalries that are shaping there. Uh, India-Pakistan and their rivalries and their dispute over the uh, Kashmir region uh, and what they may want or either one of them may want to do to resolve it or force a resolution of that. These are issues that uh, by and large have been ignored 
They have been ignored by the world's leaders and they have also been ignored uh, by the international commentariat. We, through this conference, hope to make a dent in that. And, this, uh, and hopefully this will mark the beginning of a dialogue about the Himalayas. Uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, we, we, we see that a lot more discussion takes place uh, on interstate rivalry than on uh, the much longer term uh, processes that are taking place between civilizations, uh, between regions, and between man and earth. And I think that this is an occasion to try and go beyond the normal paradigm of just understanding interstate politics, but look at things that have implications for all of us as human beings far beyond that. So it is my honor uh, to request uh, His Holiness, the Gyalwang Drupa, to uh, now address us. <laughs> and you're welcome to stand or speak from here. I don't know what's Much better. I think it's good to... Maybe I can just stand. Ah. It's a little better. Wherever you stand or sit, sir, there will be some radiance, so... We'll, <laughs> we'll. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, for having me over here, and uh, and I'm very honoured to uh, sort of given the opportunity to exchange or sort of like to share my little experience. Obviously, due to my limited English, uh, I wouldn't be able to sort of uh, uh, talk express um, entire the thing that I wanted to express. Uh, but of course, I uh, asked my friend to write some of the key points that I wanted to express into English. Uh, so it's a sort of like a partially written uh, lecture, I would say. Normally, I don't like to read anything in front of crowd because it gives kind of a, how do you say, uh, sense of uh, uh, just like a, like, a, like a school, like a, a reading a book in front of the people. And uh, it doesn't really, and also it's just uh, individually, me personally speaking, I don't really feel that much of connection with the crowd and all these things, reading book, reading a, uh, a paper. But this morning I was just requesting my friend Arjun to write us some key points um, because, uh, because my English is not good and also there are uh, the crowd over here are very highly educated and uh, also highly sort of like uh, uh, qualified and, uh, and uh, very much like uh, reverend and uh, I can't afford uh, to sort of waste uh, your precious time just uh, listening to my, you know, just uh, 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 
you know, like uh, gossip, just just like a useless gossip and wasting your time. Anyway, the uh, the uh, as uh, Sumir, my friend, uh, he said that lots of things has been given by the Himalayas to the rest of the uh, people in the world. Um, but you know that because like a, for he said it very correctly, the water, the different major rivers of uh, flowing uh, from Himalaya, like Indus River and uh, the, the other rivers. For example, Indus River is uh, coming down via Ladakh and uh, goes to Pakistan and uh, that uh, way. So of course, millions people are surviving on that river. And also, there is an, so many rivers are coming from Mount uh, Kailash and uh, through the Himalayas. So therefore, the Himalayas have always given to everyone a natural a barrier to protect the local uh, communities. However, no one has given to the Himalayas. Uh, <clears throat> uh, from being a uh, natural defense, a wall from uh, enemies uh, for all people living in the Himalayas, uh, uh, and to giving uh, resources and life-giving uh, water to 1.7 billion people. Uh, including the lineage known as Drupa lineage, that is my own lineage. And uh, that Drupa Buddhist lineage, as um, the Samir again uh, said very correctly, that uh, uh, Ladakh, for instance, it's uh, predominantly the believer or the follower of Drupa lineage. And, uh, <clears throat> but obviously, uh, naturally, the Drupa followers are the, uh, how do you say, uh, the uh, guardians of Himalaya and guardians of entire sort of uh, uh, nature and also culture and um, of or also the peace and uh, uh, happiness, etc. And uh, Drukpa, for example, the Drukpa in Himalayan language, Druk actually means the dragon. And uh, this lineage is known as a dragon lineage. It sounds like a very superstitious, but actually it is nothing. Because the founder of Drukpa lineage when he decided to uh, sort of uh, uh, look for a place where he was thinking of starting his movement, his, his movement, his teachings, etc. Uh, that time he, he found a nine dragon lying on that specific place. And when he walked in, walked to, walk towards to that place, the dragons, they flew up in the sky. 
And um, then he sort of like, he decided to name his lineage or his sort of like uh, his followers and his activities as a dragon activities, dragon lineage, dragon practice. And also he decided to call himself as a also Drupa. Um, that's the kind of a way. Now, uh, I myself also, people call me as a title, as a, uh, as, as a Drupa. Uh, <clears throat> of course, some people, they just uh, can't pronounce very nicely, so they call it Drak, Drakpa. They call it Drukka. So, you know, there are a little bit of different, I mean, the, in the pronunciation, but actually Druk is a dragon, Pa is the holder, so the dragon holder. Anyway, so that has been practiced more than 1,000 years up in Himalaya, from Ladakh to up to Nepal. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, throughout the Himalayas, it has been practicing uh, and it has been successfully sort of followed uh, by the people because it was very helpful. Uh, because the, unlike other lineage, this, uh, the Drupa lineage or Drupa practice or Drupa sort of like a tradition, if you like, is very well known to be, uh, what you call that, very much like a humanitarian kind of uh, workers, uh, humanitarian kind of oriented. So we, obviously we practice ritual, we practice meditation, we practice mantra, we practice yoga, etc., etc. But mainly this lineage is very dedicated for humanitarian and uh, serving, serving others and uh, serving nations, serving, uh, how do you say, serving nature. So this is the very, this is very much like a special speciality, if you like, of this uh, particular lineage. That's the reason why uh, the uh, Himalayan border, everywhere, the people started to sort of uh, stick with this this particular uh, uh, tradition, because they know and they understood that this is the, uh, how do you say, important tradition to save them and to guard the protection, to, how do you say, to protect the, uh, what do you call that, uh, frontiers, etc., etc. So it is a very sort of like a very well-known sort of a religion or whatever you may call, even though it is not a religion, but it is like a very well-known sort of a tradition to be followed. Uh, for the sake of the national uh, security and uh, also for the sake of the uh, serving, preserving, uh, nat uh, serving natural, saving, saving nature and uh, also respecting, uh, respecting the uh, nature. So speaking about the, <clears throat> uh, speaking about the nature also, the we Drupa always talk about respecting the nature, respecting each other. Uh, so we always not only talk about it, but we go and interact with the people and with the nature. So this is what, uh, 
what we have been like uh, uh, for, for, for hundreds of years we have been doing that and it's very well known for that. <clears throat> However, the worry is for local community that live here, this is one of the most remote place uh, on the planet. And uh, by that virtue, the last to get anyone's support, resources, uh, infrastructure, uh, investments, and, uh, and also, finally, the jobs. Uh, of course, once upon a time, I've, uh, as you all know, that uh, old Silk Road, uh, Silk Road uh, was a very much like a very uh, much uh, the uh, cause of uh, or the source of uh, um, economy, and uh, Ladakh was one of very much like an important hub, and uh, where uh, they uh, did get a lot of uh, benefit, and uh, uh, everything sort of like uh, was booming, but then they sort of uh, they stopped the uh, that kind of that 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 particular kind of uh, silk road kind of movement and uh, therefore the situation is that uh, now in the, up in himalaya uh, every everything is kind of a poor uh, poor in the sense of education poor in the sense of uh, uh, jobs and infrastructures and uh, resources, etc., etc. For example, like uh, um, where there is a, where there is infrastructure kind of uh, poorness, then obviously there is not much of uh, no, there is no sort of water uh, coming in the tab, and uh, so people have to sort of people have to work very hard to get a, a water inside. And mainly, of course, who's suffering? The woman suffers. Uh, and uh, here we are, I mean, especially uh, me, very passionate to talk about gender equality. So in that uh, con context, I would, I just uh, would say that, you know, the women uh, up in the Himalaya uh, suffers quite a bit, quite a lot. We men are enjoying quite a bit also. <laughs> uh, so women are very, very, very nice. Himalayan women are very good, but women are suffering a lot because of the lack of uh, infrastructure. And also uh, because of the lack of the, uh, in, uh, the jobs, the, uh, the children's, they have to go out. Uh, first of all, uh, there is no educational center, or there is no college, there is no university. Obviously, thanks to Indian government, we have uh, many schools, uh, but uh, I don't know whether uh, we have that uh, quality schools or not. I'm not very sure, but we have a lot of schools uh, up in Himalaya, uh, provided by Indian government, for example, uh, the, for, for Indian side of the Himalaya. And uh, obviously the Bhutan has also same thing, same kind of problem, but same kind of facilities. 
and Nepal also the same kind of problem and same kind of facilities. But up in Himalaya, overall, we, uh, we suffer from lack of the educational center. And uh, uh, then they have to go to uh, go other countries to sort of study uh, further, college, university, etc. And uh, once you s finish the, this thing, or finish the education, then they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't like to go back home because there is no job, there is no future. So that is the very, uh, very uh, severe kind of situation, very serious kind of situation. And so the job, uh, like, like yesterday, yesterday when I go to Baltimore, uh, I felt the similar kind of thing that is happening in the, uh, in the Himalaya also. And similar, not as bad as that maybe, but uh, similar, very similar. And uh, I think if, you, if we uh, leave it like this for, you know, just uh, for, uh, for decades, I think we will also be suffering uh, same kind of thing. So therefore, it is uh, something that we have to be very uh, paying attention on that. <clears throat> and uh, therefore, now the uh, now, for example, the children's now six hundred uh, six thousand children's, for example, uh, studying uh, abroad or uh, um, other parts of India. Uh, so they they can't they can't just get uh, uh, sufficient uh, uh, education in Ladakh itself, so they have to go out. And obviously, you can imagine that you know six hundred children has uh, maybe a, you know they including two two parents and the brother and sisters. They have to also go out, finally, because they all have to sort of uh, join together and uh, look for a job. So that actually means the beauty of the Ladakh, beauty of Himalaya, uh, apparently, will be sort of, uh, will be diminishing, will be sort of disappearing. And uh, uh, diversity uh, and all these like, uh, like, uh, like different uh, religion and all these beautiful uh, uh, surviving together, all the different religion, all different culture, all different sort of like a nation, all sorts of things. So right now, Ambassador said the same thing that uh, Hindu and the Muslim and also uh, the uh, Christian and uh, Sikhism and uh, you know the Buddhist people they all live very nicely and uh, very very sort of like harmoniously for many many hundreds of years but now this beauty will also be sort of going sort of uh, reducing just because of uh, lack of the uh, facilities of education and uh, uh, resources, infrastructures, investment, and jobs, finally. So that is also one thing that we have to sort of look into. Uh, <clears throat> uh, the <clears throat> uh, and the problem as uh, national uh, economy uh, grow, uh, and uh, these regions are left out, we see uh, Migration, this is what I said already. Migration of our youth and the uh, talent, uh, this must be stopped. This is what we have to look into it. If not, we will lose everything, including the beauty and the diversity of local uh, culture and the tradition. Right now, as uh, 
somebody uh, told to ambassador that uh, the the great ma uh, the, the the mountains of Himalayas is a very beautiful. That's for sure. It is very beautiful. But of course, again, uh, mountain without. Uh, uh, what do you call that? Uh, anybody who is looking after it, who and anybody who is really like uh, sort of nourishing it, I think the mountain also suffers from the uh, global uh, <clears throat> warming, etc., etc. So the, there's a sort of like a, the, the 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 mountain, uh, the the snow mountains are getting uh, stripped, and uh, now. Many of the mountains I can see uh, when I fly and also when I track, when I hike, uh, I can see that many mountains are now getting black. means uh, you can see the rocks uh, and the snows are getting sort of uh, very, uh, very uh, thinner and thinner and thinner. <clears throat> this is also sort of, uh, I think, uh, due to our lack of education, due to our lack of sort of like a, a love towards the Himalaya and understanding of the value of the Himalaya. <clears throat> and uh, let's, uh, let's go back uh, talking a little bit about the Drupa lineage, the Drupa lineage from Ladakh to Nepal uh, and also uh, the Bhutan, the Bhutan uh, the uh, national uh, religion uh, is the Drupa lineage. Uh, so, uh, um, so Bhutan to the northeast of India and Tibet. And, uh, you know, the seas, a lo uh, lot of uh, these uh, problems, uh, you know, the, we all see that this, uh, this, a lot of these problems firsthand and is also the first to offer relief. For example, uh, any kind of uh, natural disasters comes. For example, in Ladakh, uh, a couple of years ago, there was a cloudburst. And the first uh, people uh, who went out and uh, give relief uh, uh, help uh, was uh, the Drupa community. The Drupa community went even before Prime Minister came. Prime Minister's uh, kind of relief work came in to the region. Uh, we, uh, the Drupa uh, followers, uh, went out and uh, saved uh, quite a bit of people and uh, a lot of things uh, we had, uh, we, we, we did it. So this is the one of the examples, small example. And also, uh, just an uh, incident that we had just a couple of uh, week or two weeks ago that uh, the uh, earthquake in Nepal. Also, my our nuns, like Drupa nuns, they call it Kung Fu nuns. Uh, uh, <clears throat> the nuns, they uh, refuse to be evacu uh, evacuated and uh, they uh, sort of, they stayed there and they said, our mission is to save people and to save the nation and to sort of protect uh, anything that is need to be protected. So we don't want to be sort of uh, going and running away uh, from this, uh, um, um, uh, how do you say, fear. Obviously, that, that there was a, of course, right now we can say, and we don't feel that much, but uh, if, if you are just simply imagine that if you are, if we are there, at that time, it is just uh, amazing, you know, like uh, it's just unbelievable because everything is falling down. Every, you know, the earthquake is really the one of the most kind of uh, 
uh, dangerous and also very scary kind of thing. So these girls, or nuns rather, um, over 500 nuns, they refused to be. Sort of, uh, many people came and many people telephoned them, and uh, many of my students and uh, my friends, who has even some of them have their own private jets. They're willing to send the private jets and the helicopters and army also to, to uh, organize the army aeroplanes and all these things because they were thinking that uh, there will be a, a further uh, devastate a kind of uh, earthquake comes and then uh, cause the airport. Uh, uh, runs away, crack, then nothing can be done. So therefore they were saying that, you know, that we, we, were, we, we, we will come and uh, evacuate it, uh, all, all of you. So please uh, be prepared. And uh, they refused to go. They said uh, our mission is to save uh, others, to protect the nation and to protect the people, whatever it is need to be done. So it is not our dictionary, you know, our dictionary doesn't say that we you run away uh, when the uh, when the uh, how do you say uh, natural disasters happens or when any kind of disasters happen, do you run away? Uh, that's not in our dictionary. So this is the reason why they stay back, and uh, they were doing every day, every night, they were doing the relief work um, constantly. Uh, even though they themselves, they don't have anything. They don't have anything. They don't have a shelter. They don't have a um, uh, kitchen to, uh, where they can cook. Of course, they have a little bit of a food. Uh, that's all. And, uh, but uh, obviously, they are very happy uh, as a Drupa follower. They were happy there to sort of say, uh, s uh, serve uh, anybody around. Uh, so these are the these are the kung fu nuns, and obviously this is not only the nuns, but there are many monks also, and many uh, boys and girls, uh, lay lay people also. They were very much dedicated uh, because, as as a follower of Drukpa lineage, uh, they all know that what is the principle of uh, this. So that is the thing. And uh, national defense, uh, this is also one of the issue that uh, the security, that, but that is I, uh, some maybe the discussion, uh, maybe along the discussion we have, will have a, some, uh, some other opportunity to talk about the national securities and uh, uh, national securities up in the Himalayan region, uh, which uh, has been already sort of one, uh, the, one of the many um, responsibility uh, that has been taken um, um, uh, by the Drupa uh, followers. Uh, and uh, now, obviously, the one of the recent recent kind of incident that is happening is forced uh, conversion of our Drupa monasteries uh, by external forces. Uh, 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 so, uh, <clears throat> uh, and uh, also, they they said that you know the some some of them said uh, said that you know you, you you can't live you can't stay in that monastery you you have to leave uh, the place and uh, that sort of thing, and uh, some some of these place of course they the they use their money uh, to sort of get rid of everything and they they just uh, uh, convert so the, some of them unfortunately the. Uh, 
the, they use the Buddhist also to sort of uh, convert the Buddhist uh, monasteries into different types of Buddhist uh, lineage or different Buddhist belief and that sort of thing. It sh really uh, should should really be uh, stopped. That is very important. And that is uh, mainly started happening in the uh, uh, Mount Kailash, and uh, and uh, then obviously it is uh, uh, softly it is happening in Ladakh and Sikkim, and uh, almost everywhere, uh, uh, everywhere, you know. So therefore, this is the something that we have to really be taking care, and we have to be talking about. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, um, to my gossip. Thank you. Um, thank you, Your Holiness. Uh, we will now have a very brief break uh, so that we can then have our first panel, uh, which will be moderated by Dr. Sanjoy Joshi uh, of the ORF. And the topic of that is climate, economics, and culture. Uh, a short break. Thank you initial uh, inaugural introductions. Uh, so welcome back again after your tea break. Uh, personally, for me, it's a great honor to be chairing this panel. And uh, thanks to His Holiness uh, for being here with us. And of course, uh, Ken for partnering with ORF in hosting this event in New York. Uh, for me personally, this actually is a very is a topic close to my heart uh, because in many ways I am I regard myself as a child of the Himalayas. I was born there and uh, spent the best years of my life there. And whenever I need spiritual rejuvenation, which is very often, let me assure you, uh, I keep on going back home. I still regard that as my home. Uh, so, so it's a great pleasure. Uh, being here with you all and uh, chairing this panel. Uh, let me begin with a small anecdote. Now, I'm talking about uh, 40 years back. I must have been about 14, 15, around that time. And uh, my father was a postmaster, posted in one of the remote uh, hill villages in a district called Pithoragar. And I used to keep going with him uh, during my vacations. And he took me on these uh, short treks outside into the villages in the region. And I remember as a child going out with him and saw these uh, lovely terraced farms, somewhere cultivating these high altitude potatoes and you know all kinds of crops. And one of the most remarkable thing I noticed was that there were whole tracts of farmland which had no fences. And we walked, you know, terrace after terrace, and uh, the devastation caused by, in some cases, by wild boar was profuse. They had dug up virtually everything. So I asked a very logical question. I said, why there's so much wood around, lying around here? There's so much stone lying around here. Why aren't these guys building fences? So my dad said, why don't you ask them? So we caught hold of one uh, farmer who we met you know, merely coming down the way. 
And I asked him <coughs> that why, why have you not fenced these farms? Why is there so much devastation caused by the wild boar and all the other animals around? And his answer was very simple. He said, Chol, eto kakadakchu, eto suarakchu. This belongs, this is the share of the wild boar. This is the share of the kakar, the barking deer. How can I take it back from them? This is the land I share with these animals, and I've been cultivating this. I've been going back there year after year, and uh, many more fences have come up. Farmlands have got divided. Each year I've gone back, seen many more fences, and those fences today are actually a metaphor uh, for what has been happening in the Himalayas persistently for so many decades. You know, we, we are in this panel, we'll be talking about uh, various issues. The fact is that uh, these are, in a way, the lungs of the world. These are the water towers of the region. In the introduction, we discussed, it was mentioned, how the major river systems in many countries originate in these areas. So they are the water towers. But the fact is water, climate, knowledge, even trade, and disasters know no boundaries. The boundaries which we have superimposed upon them are artificial constructs. These are political constructs, and always, you know, religion, folklore, music, uh, the trade impulses, and the ecology have been the great unifying, the great integrative factors which have been bringing the people together for generations and generations in this area. 70s, if you remember, are the first major ecological movement, perhaps, of recent times began in the Himalayas. Uh, it was called the Chipko movement, the movement of tree huggers. When women went out into the forests, hugged the trees, and said, I am married to this tree. No one can cut it. Because this is the forest on which my livestock depends. This is the forest on which my children depend. I will not give it up under any circumstances. So that was the birth of the Chipko movement, which completely altered the contracting systems by which natural produce was being exploited in those areas. So these, uh, these are some of the community movements which began in that area. So there is a, there's a huge history, there's a huge culture, there's a huge ecology, which has been the driving force uh, behind much of this. But uh, you know, we have so many experts uh, here with us today. I will keep on butting in with some comments on and off as the chair. I will take that uh, privilege. <laughs> uh, but let me, uh, first of all, uh, when uh, His Holiness spoke, he spoke of the very key problem, the problem of economy sustainability, the huge migration one sees in these areas, people moving out, talent moving out, there's very little to hold them back. Issues of unemployment, migration, how do you, it, it, it's a contradiction in terms, because in a way, every impulse that we know as modern development, what we've understood as development, actually becomes a very disruptive force 
in breaking on very close integrated communities. Now, how do you build upon, how do you build infrastructure, which in many ways, when you try to build roads, when you try to build large projects, when you try to create employment in, the, in that region, you end up causing many other larger implications which are more disruptive than they are creative. So the, the, the whole challenge of having an economic life, having economic sustainability in those areas uh, becomes a key question. So let me uh, first of all invite uh, Ken Weinstein, uh, the president of the Hudson Institute, uh, to open the discussion. Uh, Ken, we have you have about five to seven minutes, right. and I'll keep the time. And then we will pass on to the others. Over to you, Ken. Thank you, Sanjoy. I'm, I'm also uh, truly honored to be in the presence of uh, His Holiness. Uh, as I met when we just spent a few moments uh, together, it's uh, you're a, a leader of uh, deep insight with followers throughout the world and also someone who speaks with immense moral clarity on the fundamental challenges uh, that uh, are faced uh, to the practice of uh, your religion uh, in, in freedom, in peace, and uh, in openness at a time uh, when others uh, are much less favorable to it. And uh, your courage, uh, your insight, uh, uh, as I say, I'm truly honored to be on this uh, panel with you. Uh, and I'm also honored to be on this panel with those who are not holinesses as well. <laughs> I should say, I should note, and I, I begin. I, I'm not a child of the Himalayas. I was born uh, 38 blocks south of here at uh, Beth Israel Hospital. So my, uh, but I, but I appreciate the region. And it was in India uh, earlier this summer. Let me uh, to talk about the uh, economics of the region. Let me just uh, say first of all, the economics of the region, and, I, and I'm going to be talking about the large-scale economics, not the human economics. Uh, although the two are obviously interrelated in, in, in some deep way. Uh, the, the region itself is deeply underappreciated uh, by, uh, by us in the United States, so it's especially important that we're uh, partnering with our, with our good friends at the Observer Research Foundation, with whom we've had a partnership for some time, to look at uh, these issues. Because uh, the, in the United States, we tend only really to focus on the region at times of crisis, obviously the, the horrific earthquake, uh, challenges in Tibet and the like. Uh, so the, when you when you look at the region, it's it's an absolutely uh, it's a, it's a, it's just an absolutely fascinating region. Um, topographically, uh, with the Himalayas, uh, ancient cultures, uh, significant poverty, though development. Uh, uh, you've got ten of uh, Asia's largest rivers, which either, as was noted before, either start in the Himalayas or in the Tibetan Plain. Uh, and so it's a, it's a region where people's lives are really, across borders, interrelated in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a profoundly deep fashion, uh, more so than we're used to in, in the United States when you look at, uh, at, you look at this. And so, uh, and the, these, these 10 largest rivers uh, serve as uh, the source of water for 47% of the world's population. So it's a, it's it's really a dramatically important region. Just naturally, uh, aside from the cultures and the the rich uh, heritage uh, uh, and the like. Um, now, 
the region economically is, is, is uh, the, 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 the primary, there are a number of challenges, one of which was addressed earlier was this issue of uh, China's uh, uh, being in a very fortunate situation. Uh, uh, someone who was of Jewish heritage, there was a long-running joke among Jews about the state of Israel that uh, Moses uh, spent 40 years wandering in the desert to find the only place in the Middle East where there wasn't oil. And one sort of looks at the way that the, uh, the Lord works, uh, that the forces more broadly work mysteriously where China has significant upstream control of uh, water resources, natural resources in nine of uh, the ten largest uh, rivers really uh, the, the, the are somehow under China, China's upstream control. And so uh, this poses a major challenge uh, to, uh, given often a lack of transparency uh, from China, uh, a, a lack of uh, willingness to uh, share basic information, uh, in addition to obviously a major a uh, quest to, to move development forward as China modernizes very quickly as uh, a significant portion of China is moving into cities. Uh, all of this means that, uh, uh, that there are very complex economic forces at play that have also geostrategic uh, implications uh, that, that one, has to, one has to deal with. Um, and all the regions of the, of the country, because, because of the significance of the agrarian economies and subsistence uh, farming in, in, in most of these economies, and, uh, all these economies are so heavily dependent on, on water flow that uh, attempts to build dams to uh, uh, sh shape the direction of water have an immense uh, impact downstream as far away as uh, Vietnam, Laos, and beyond. Uh, and. Uh, adding to the complexities of, uh, that exist in the region. I would say uh, drawing a bit on what, uh, and, and, but water also is an immense force because it, it gives the possibility of hydropower and the potential to modernize uh, dramatically. And so it, uh, when, when handled properly, can, can be a force for good if, if handled in a economic, ecologically uh, responsible manner uh, when dealing with one's uh, partners uh, downstream. Let, let me note in terms of uh, uh, the region itself that I think that uh, drawing on, in part on what uh, His Holiness uh, said during his remarks, that there are, that there are I think, uh, six major factors that affect the economy of the region. Uh, one is this the overriding quest for water, which there's shortage of in almost all of the countries in the region, in particular in China the need uh, for significant uh, electrical, uh, much, much greater electrical generation as countries uh, modernize. Uh, that's, that's an incredible challenge as we move to cell phones in villages where people don't have electricity. Uh, when, when the cell phone becomes sort of the absolutely necessary gateway to uh, the world, to commerce. The need for a much better infrastructure and the, oftentimes the uh, significant challenges that uh, are posed by the uh, harsh weather in the region pose a challenge to uh, infrastructure, as does the broader poverty that uh, is faced in the region. Uh, the move towards urbanization, which uh, is also driving uh, the need for increased infrastructure, uh, the need for greater capital to undertake infrastructure projects, and uh, 
the, the plight of uh, possible human capital outflows from the region as people seek better opportunities elsewhere. Now, these, these economic forces really tend to play with each other, and there's, there's, a, there's a massive interplay uh, between, between all of these, as we've seen on the issue of water, as we've seen on the issue of uh, hydroelectricity. Uh, one country could modernize, and that modernization could occur at the expense of another country, the ability to, uh, to, to move forward. Uh, and so, very rapidly, let me just make a few quick points about each of the economies of the region. Uh, China is obviously uh, the world's second largest economy in terms of uh, GDP. Uh, the workforce, uh, a third of the workforce is in manufacturing, a third is in agriculture, a third is in services. Uh, this differs significantly, and, and with the modernization, it means immense demands for electricity, for infrastructure, and the like. Uh, India is the world's seventh largest economy by GDP, but half of India's workers remain in agriculture, which, uh, and India needs to move, I would argue, though, uh, with all due respect, that India needs to move to, to greater high-yield agriculture that would take better advantage of uh, using less water in agriculture. Only 11% of jobs in India come out of uh, manufacturing. India is now currently moving towards a greater liberalization of its uh, labor laws under uh, Prime Minister uh, Modi. This is, this is clearly an important uh, factor as it moves forward, but uh, India and China are in a period of uh, what I would call strategic economic competition throughout the region. That India has had for some time significant cultural and economic ties uh, throughout history, particularly to uh, nations with uh, significant uh, uh, Buddhist populations, but uh, China has now become much more aggressive, as, as we heard from His Holiness, through its Silk Road efforts to reshape uh, trade uh, throughout the region, and with China putting heavy emphasis on putting money into infrastructure projects both in China and outside of China, including in, uh, in Nepal. The, the, in terms of the other countries of the region, uh, Nepal is uh, heavily tied to uh, India's uh, economy. Indian, Nepal is a source of significant energy generation for India, but it is a country that has, because of its water resources, but it's a country where 25% of the population lives below the poverty line. It has one of the weakest uh, infrastructures. It is obviously isolated, mountainous, and nearly 80% of the workforce is in agriculture, uh, which poses challenges. Bhutan is a country that uh, obviously lies between India and China, 170,000 people, a landlocked nation. It also uh, uh, is, is highly economically linked with India, which provides financial assistance, trade, migrant workers. Uh, Bhutan is also a significant source of hydroelectric power for India, uh, and they have, there are four new deals that have been signed for Bhutan to uh, produce uh, energy uh, for India. Uh, and it too faces many of the infrastructure problems that, uh, that Nepal faces. Myanmar is, is a country which India is starting to, uh, it, India is, is increases outreach too. Obviously, Myanmar enjoyed uh, preferential ties to China for some time. Uh, it is also one of the poorest economies in Asia, 60 million people living in poverty. Uh, a country that is now starting to open up uh, to the West, uh, uh, looking for uh, uh, investment uh, uh, in infrastructure and the like. Uh, 
it, it obviously has an, a, a very has vast natural resources, a young workforce, and uh, an ability to grow significantly in the next few years if Western uh, investment comes in, uh, and if the investment uh, is done properly. Let me let me simply uh, note very quickly with regard to Pakistan that uh, obviously Pakistan has been. Uh, shall we say, problem child in the region uh, for some time. I defer to my colleague, Ambassador Hussein Akani, you can speak about uh, the Pakistani economy. Let me simply note in terms of this issue of uh, Pakistan's immense need for infrastructure, its uh, place in this geostrategic competition uh, with, uh, uh, with India and uh, also with regard to China, that uh, China has significantly uh, increased its outreach to uh, to Pakistan on infrastructure issues. Uh, we just saw the visit of Xi Jinping uh, to Pakistan, and there are going to be major uh, infrastructure deals that uh, China is going to be investing in in uh, Pakistan that are seen as some sort of a attempt to rebalance uh, the region as, as India and Japan become closer economic partners. All in all, let me simply note that the that the economic complexities of the region are are, are significant. Uh, that the geo geostrategic uh, factors, in addition to ecological ones, uh, play in as well, and uh, making and 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 the countries are so closely interrelated that everything from water supply to electrical supply to trade to the repression of religious minorities all all has an impact and it's something we need as Americans to watch much more closely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ken. Uh, really a broad sweep coverage of uh, not just the economy of the region, but also the very complex uh, strategic issues which confront uh, the you know, countries in the region. We will be covering a lot more of that in the second session, but thank you for you know giving us a, such a broad oversweep uh, view of this all. Uh, now let me pass on to uh, Mr. Mauskar, who has been very much part of uh, the climate change negotiations. He's part of the Observer Research Foundation and has been India's prime negotiator for climate change. Uh, the Himalayas, as you all know, occupy a very sensitive position. There's a lot of literature talk which keeps coming about as to what has been happening in the region. Uh, this is something at the intersection of uh, development and ecology. There's a you call it an intersection, you call it a collision, or whichever way you want to look upon it. Uh, there is a huge amount of activity which also goes on in the Himalayas where uh, you see that yes, there is uh, on the one hand the impulse to build a large infrastructure, but then who is the infrastructure being built for? And what is the purpose <coughs> of the infrastructure being built for? Who is it servicing? Who is it serving? These are all questions which become very important. Uh, so uh, let me pass on to uh, Mr. Mauskar to look at it from the uh, ecology point of view, the ecological point of view, and the larger changes which are happening. 2013 uh, saw one of the biggest and most devastating floods to hit one part of the region. Uh, we've just seen uh, the devastation which has happened in Nepal. Uh, so over to you, Mr. Mauskar. Yeah, uh, thank you, Sanjay. Uh, to begin with, I must thank ORF and Hudson Foundation, which have made it possible to get me all the way from India here. <laughs> now, I mean, Himalayas, what I would like to point out, because many other aspects already have been said, uh, Himalayas are called the third pole. You have, you have North Pole, you have got South Pole. Himalayas are the third pole. 
And the reason is that not only Himalayas are the largest accumulation of snow and ice, uh, but in that part of the world, the rains don't come throughout the year. The rains come concentrated in the monsoon season, that's three months, July, August, September. Uh, what does the farmer do in the plains? Uh, in the summer, the ice and snow melt and they supply some very valuable source of water. Uh, second is Himalayas are unique uh, ecosystem, flora and fauna. Third to be noted about Himalayas is the geological uh, fragility. Himalayas are the youngest mountain chain in the world. They are composed of limestone. Limestone is not very uh, good building material. Uh, but more important than that, and that was uh, demonstrated last month, the Indian plate is colliding with the Eurasian plate. And uh, roughly every 50 years, there is a major earthquake. Major means more than Richter scale 8 or so. And uh, in the recorded history, it is the cycle is 50 years. It starts from somewhere north of Pamir in the north, uh, then it comes east up to the syntaxial bend. Now, where the earthquakes will hit, I mean, it's anybody's guess, but one thing is sure that Indian plate continues to uh, slide under the Eurasian plate. Now, this being so, how has the mankind been impacting Himalayas? Now, uh, climate change can be global, but the local climate change which, which is happening for last, let's say, 200 years is due to massive deforestation. Like, you know, somebody was talking of infrastructure. The construction of Indian railways uh, led to cutting of about, what, 20 million, 30 million trees because between the two iron rails, there is a wooden tie. Uh, millions of trees were cut. Uh, increase of human population, fertilizers, pesticides, they have led to uh, hillsides being uh, converted into farms. Uh, so population pressure. Uh, the dams have been constructed, hydroelectric dams, multi-purpose hydroelectric dams. We are very proud of them. But as a result, there is hardly any perennial river. Perennial rivers are those rivers which flow throughout the year. All the rivers are seasonal. Now, on top of all this stress, uh, now the anthropogenic climate change has come. As you are aware, greenhouse gases act as a blanket around the earth and they heat up the atmosphere. Uh, not very much, two to four degrees, but two to four degrees average conceals in it uh, lots of uh, variations. And uh, so far as Indian subcontinent is concerned, so far as Himalayas are concerned, uh, still the debate is there that has the climate signal sort of manifested itself. Because there was lots of talk in the newspapers that the Himalayan glaciers are melting and it is due to the climate change. But uh, life is seldom so simple. The Himalaya Himalayan glaciers have been melting for last 150 to 200 years. The British conquerors, they wrote detailed diaries. And from that we know that there is a natural variability to the glaciers. But yes, there is a superpose on that, some variability of melting of Himalayan glaciers. And the 
fear is that if the glaciers disappear if not or they reduce what happens to the water in summer in the indo-gangetic plain or wherever all these seven river systems are the second manifestation of climate change would be in the variability of monsoons uh, very monsoon is a very complex and uh, a very energetic phenomena uh, but then there are averaging when you take uh, large geographical areas the variability would mean there will be very intense uh, rain maybe for 2 hours maybe for 3 hours which uh, which is what happened in 2013 and the river systems and the uh, human settlements mostly on the flood plains are not designed to handle the uh, this these kind of cloud bursts the irreversible damage to ecosystems caused by deforestation caused by agriculture will also be susceptible to these kind of uh, fluctuations in rains so what do we do now uh, men i'm aware of what the neighboring countries are thinking and doing and india i was associated with our response to climate change especially in himalayan region uh, you'll be surprised with all these satellites and so many scientists and all uh, knowledge about himalayas the solid knowledge um, is not there these are very remote hostile areas when you go to the what what you call is inner himalayas uh, it may take scientists months of trekking to reach somewhere and uh, then to make observations and come back so what we decided in india was that first we'll have observation and monitoring network on some kind of uh, 24 by 7 kind of a basis that where are we and then you do ground truthing because satellite imagery uh, is very attractive to look at it but when you do ground truthing the truth may be something else this is what you found uh, and the response we thought was that enough of individual heroism or individual efforts we need to bring back the community based management of ecosystems now how it is to be done because government doesn't work well in these kind of community based uh, systems how it is to be done is something else but at the government level we realize we need to bring back the community based management the pesticide fertilizer kind of uh, driven uh, farming in himalayas is deadly so i mean how it is to be done again is a big question mark but maybe organic farming maybe uh, more eco friendly farming uh, the deforestation in himalayas has already taken place we are not as lucky as brazil that uh, by reducing their deforestation they have managed to they are managing to fulfill their climate targets and also sort of help the world but uh, another target we thought was that maybe 66% of himalayas wherever the forests were there 66% afforestation the last point uh, now that is where uh, i'll tie up with what dr winston was saying geostrategic geopolitical and so on so forth in the climate negotiations there is a phrase called intended nationally determined contributions that each nation con- decides what they want to contribute Uh, towards combating the climate change uh, because like uh, you know the country i am sitting here don't uh, want anybody to tell them what to do and same it is in the country i come from the problem is 
that in a uh, in himalayas where the political boundaries are artificial and himalayas are a natural feature uh, how would the nationally determined contributions tie up to make let's say a himalayan contribution himalayan not in size but himalayan in coverage now that is a conundrum which i guess we'll be facing uh, after paris because paris is uh, supposed to be Uh, the destination for some kind of a climate agreement what the world will do between 2020 to 2030 but uh, between then that is 2015 and 2020 i think we'll need we have four years and somewhere we have to put together the act that the himalayan countries india china pakistan nepal bhutan uh, even maybe affected countries like bangladesh how do they put their act together so that their nationally determined contributions relating to himalayas uh, do add up uh, that the whole uh, becomes more than the part so that is the challenge before us thank you uh, thank you uh, so much mr mosco for covering this uh, you know very very complex issue uh, where there are no very simple and straightforward answers uh, on the, the whole the whole ecological question uh, which is uh, confronting the himalayas uh you mentioned something very pertinent you know but you said that when we are trying to study the himalayas we still find that our knowledge of these areas is so rare it is the areas are so remote uh, that probably we need to build more observing stations probably we need to you know get into more uh, uh you know detailed uh, uh kind of studies of the region to go forward maybe we have not really been thinking out of the box you know the probably the solution is to start thinking outside the box and uh, uh, answers do not necessarily come from scientists in white coats and sitting in labs all the time uh, answers come from various other sources and uh, for that you know we have uh, someone with us today uh, arvind gupta who's uh, who heads the it cello bb who always has been who, whose head you know led modi's campaign uh, which the whole world today is following every <coughs> politician wants to follow modi's campaign in the elections but what he's here for that is not to tell us about modi's campaign he is one person who understands concepts of crowdsourcing who understands concepts of how local knowledge systems can be used and modern technology perhaps be used to devise ways and methodologies which moves away from traditional solutions of knowledge generation knowledge management uh, that is one aspect of it <coughs> the other is there is so much traditional knowledge indigenous knowledge systems repositories lying in these areas now how can we move forward perhaps rethink ways because these are community based systems you need to redefine what ipr is you need to re redefine what what intellectual property is there are there are a lot of collisions happening there also when you when you talk of strategic moves global moves trade regimes there there's a lot of collision happening there also so let me pass on to uh, arun gupta to tell us something about you know uh, your knowledge of the of how health systems operate how crowdsourcing operates and what is the way forward with the himalayas and uh, thank you sanjay um but uh, you know i will uh, start off with some uh, anecdotes from the campaign and uh, relate to the himalayas <laughs> uh and also so shows the um, uh the current thinking in the uh, in the in the in the regime in new delhi uh, about the himalayas um about a year and a half ago um uh, the 
Himalayan belt uh, and if you see the uh, two main um, uh, regions that fall in India, uh, the, uh, from the north uh, east and the north west of India, um, have never been um, very uh, built in to the Indian um, political system. Uh, the reason being that, uh, you know, very difficult to access, very difficult to reach out to, and the dividends were never there. The political dividends were never there. So, vastly ignored, mostly uh, uh, locally, whatever the politics would happen, that, uh, you know, those representatives would reach New Delhi. But, uh, and uh, how we, I'm relating to that is very interesting. We were given a mandate that we have to reach out to every single person in that region and to to make sure that they they understand um, what new delhi the new new regime in new delhi means for them and that was that was a mandate given to us um, we we went and surveyed the region as much as we could, both on the northeast uh, side, the Arunachal side, and as well as uh, where His Holiness uh, um, has a lot of following in the Ladakh region. And um, uh, when uh, when we went there, two two things, very interesting aspects came out. The reception was overwhelming. People were more than willing to understand and and engage in a conversation. Which was, uh, which was very heartening. The challenge then remained second is, uh, how do you reach out to them, given the vastness and the, the, the sparsity of people spread all across? Um, the quest for information was the same, absolutely the same. And um, uh, the, the desire to get information, desire to engage was as, as much as anybody else would have in the rest of the country. And that was very, very heartening. So uh, what we did um, in the campaign, during the campaign period was, um, was, was very remarkable. We used technology. And if you've seen the Star Wars, uh, the Star uh, 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 Wars, or uh, any, any um, 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 science fiction, you saw the, the 3D holograms, and the people getting uh, beamed from one place to another place. Um, one of the big things about the last year's campaign was uh, the, uh, the whole uh, use of hologram and uh, the 3D holograms, which where the prime minister would speak at a particular place in Delhi, but we could create 100 to 150 such replicas in real time. Uh, 3D replicas that were, you know, were speaking to an audience like this in in um, in the whole of uh, the unreachable areas, and the primary target of such hologramic um, 3D conversations were the uh, the belts in the Himalayan region, and the response was overwhelming. People appreciated the fact that somebody made an effort to come to them, use latest technology. And this technology, if you've not seen, I would encourage you to do uh, Narendra Modi 3D on a YouTube. You'll, you'll find it amazing. It's real time. It's real. And if, if people had, a, and we, I was part of the crowd in, in, in a couple of these speeches, people, uh, the, the, the audience did not believe that Prime Minister did not attend in person. 
they they had uh, they had uh, disputes with the local organizers that you did not want me to shake hand with the uh, with the future prime minister <laughs> that's why you didn't let uh, you said that he he is coming on a 3d it is the, it's not true the impact of that was multifold the outcome was multifold this was part of the campaign the impact was both electoral dividend for the first time we actually won ladakh uh, shift in thinking of new delhi we won ladakh by 35 uh, votes actually the closest election ever and we won in arunachal the northeast part of india the current uh, uh, deputy minister for home is from arunachal by the way um uh, that was political dividend the other thing that happened is that in the in the in the national vision that we set out for the party a very important thing was said and i'm sure uh, my colleagues uh, in the next session are going to discuss it a lot more but one aspect which is very important is to set up the himalayan institute for for uh, to disc uh, for two areas one is how digital and technology can be used as a lever as a lever to to increase jobs and his holiness mentioned the mountains cannot be without people if there is going to be urbanization and people movement away from the mountains seeking jobs our vision is how we can use the digital economy and that is uh, the very contrary uh, way of looking at it a new way of looking at it so um, what areas um, we are working on is using digital as a lever as technology as a lever to create jobs there to ensure knowledge systems from from the himalayan region are taken to the world that community ip the crowdsource ip that the awareness is created globally about that and 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 we believe that technology can be used as a massive lever in that um so uh, this is the game change one of the game changers i always say while we are going to construct the physical infrastructure in that region and it has uh, strategic geopolitical advantages the, the the current regime is very very eager to set up a state of the art a leapfrogged digital infrastructure and create a digital economies a knowledge system around the digital platform we've launched the world's biggest digital inclusion program called digital india um india today is second or third in the use of digital systems globally uh but the percentage is not second or third we are about 25% connected 75% still to be connected um but the, the the charter is to ensure that every single part of india is connected i i was not speaking there by the way there was no 3d hologram yeah. there <laughs> so uh, uh so the, the, to build this digital infrastructure and include the 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 remotest part of the himalayan regions in that to bring about and i'll bring about a three or four uh, issues that you know i heard since morning uh people move away from these towns because they don't get the right facilities in terms of jobs right education and right healthcare this is the three big data points um jobs education and healthcare and that is 
the plan that we again the second point we did in in the in the national vision for the uh, that the party set out during the elections and which is now the document the vision document for the country because we we thankfully won the elections um, is something called urban now this is a new terminology urban r urban this is providing the rural india urban facilities and that is our our that is our uh, attempt to provide urban level jobs infrastructure uh, jobs healthcare and education to rural india using digital connectivity so e education telemedicine uh, so that people stay there there is there are jobs there is there is uh, and we i'm going to discuss jobs also sh shortly uh, how, and how and that is the first step so digital connectivity as a base and providing content in real time uh, with respect to education and of course telemedicine based healthcare and you know physical infrastructure will be built together this we believe has the power to invert the pyramid and you know really create a level playing field when it comes to um, innovation marketing this innovation globally creating uh, opportunities of job and commerce uh, we've seen this uh, while we have opened up uh, digital economy centers or digital economies, the, the rural India is the one that has benefited incrementally the most. The have-nots have really benefited the most. They've been able to open markets globally for it. They've been able to sell their products globally. They've been able to collaborate on the IP that Sanjay that you were mentioning about and, uh, and package that as a market, marketable product. The two, three areas that we feel um, really uh, uh, the knowledge systems are so uh, so deep and so uh, can can provide uh, leadership to the rest of the world is of course in the area of alternative uh, medicine and health. Uh, the medicinal benefits, uh, both the use of technology to do a verification and validation of uh, FDA equivalent for alternative medicine. Uh, a technology-enabled FDA equivalent for all alternative medicine, and seeing that these are FDA-approved uh, or equivalent-approved products and taking them to the world—that's part of the vision. Um, really taking local innovation, um, and and, th and this has been the traditional system of uh, of uh, of medicine for many many years, but never has been taken globally, and that's one of the things. And of course, the second lever, where technology will provide local employment and jobs is, is tourism. Um, the story, the awareness of uh, a lot of sub-communities has not been told to the world. And uh, once digital connectivity comes about, and we have many cases, many examples in India where the moment they were connected on a, on a, on a system, uh, they were able to get a much higher realization um, for, for their products, which may be tourism, uh, could be their uh, BNBs. Um, so uh, uh, tourism and health are the two key first few challenges that we want to use from 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 the region to to sell to the world. Really, from make in Himalaya to sell to the world, and that's part of our make in India uh, philosophy also. So. Um, the last thing I do want to mention is uh, the this brings about this whole um, uh, thing of you know how do you create the power of networks how do you 
how do you create a brand awareness for this region and uh, and sanjay to your mention this is that crowdsourcing of uh, and making you know uh, stringing all these small small pearls together and making a larger um, brand for the region rather than smaller brands uh, in the sub regions so the technology can really help in creating a bigger community a integrated community an integrated brand if you may call rather than small small sub brands and uh, that's one of the things that we think will work very well for the region um uh, in, uh, to just sum it up uh, i think uh, uh, it's it's uh, the current regime is you know very very clear on using digital as a lever for throughout the country and uh, the himalayan region um uh, even so more because it has a lot to not only receive but also to give especially in areas of tourism and uh, and uh, and health so thank you uh, thank you so much arvind uh, and you you put a very interesting proposition before us that perhaps uh, the digital economy can do what uh, the traditional economy didn't could not manage to do uh, one in a way did marginalize huge swathes of populations perhaps digital economy can step in uh, to make those corrections uh, it's it, uh, it's a very important insight let us see where we move on this uh, now let me uh, come to our last speaker and uh, you know our main speaker uh, we heard him in the morning temple spirituality have always been such a big draw in in the himalayas and uh, people yes i spoke about you know keeping going back to the hills going back to the mountains to rejuvenate yourself to discover spiritual roots and spiritual linkages uh, now sir my question to you is uh, a bit different my question to you uh, holiness is that uh, there are you know a lot of people who do keep coming back you know it's a, it's 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 the syndrome of going back home going back to your roots uh, having moved out having becoming uh, become empowered having acquired power having acquired privileges then you go back back to the uh, to your temples your monasteries and try to reassert maybe ownership maybe you know try to reclaim to achieve to try to reclaim roots now that itself i think does create a certain kind of disruption as far as you know in the in in the local communities uh, what are your views on that <clears throat> spirituality uh, when you when you talk about the spirituality i think it reminds me of talking about uh, uh, spirituality is uh, being a being a backbone of uh, of of uh, religion and uh, and um, uh, diversity uh, like of religion like a living living uh, living all the different sorts of religious people together harmoniously is fully depends on the spirituality uh, it's not depends on the religiosity if you if you if you are very much fully sort of like a controlled and, and sort of like a, uh, a, a sort of influenced by the religion uh, no matter what sort of religion maybe it's a buddhist maybe hindu maybe maybe uh, you know the christianity maybe islamic anyway any religion uh, if you if you bound or if you sort of like if you uh, put yourself into a kind of a cap, uh, 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 cage 
cage um, of, a, of a religion, then of course you cannot really, I don't think, I, I, I don't see any sort of a future uh, of, uh, of, of a living harmoniously because uh, I am in a Buddhist cage, you are in a, a Muslim cage, and uh, he's he's in a he's in a uh, Christian cage. You know, there's a you know that we have we all have, will have a sort of different cage. So we cannot really stretch our legs and our arms, and uh, you know the relaxation will not be able to do it, and especially will not be able to understand and uh, uh, cooperate together. I don't think so because you know the all the religion has a different way. Like uh, for example. My dress is a such a such a unique dress, and this is a religious, very much a religion, and I think nobody really uh, wears this dress uh, unless you are a Buddhist and you are Drupa lineage, a Drupa follower or Drupa religion, uh, if you like. Even though we don't we don't call ourselves religion, but of course, if it's uh, if you like, you can call it. So, and uh, other other Christian priests uh, will uh, will uh, will will have another unique kind of dress, and Hindu Hindu masters have a. A, a unique different uh, dress and unique colors and all the things. and all the masters and all the religion different 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 has a uh, different religion has a different dress different uh, uh, color different sort of uh, ritual ritualities etc etc so all these things I think fanatically if you are if you are uh, if you are caught up with it, then I call it I call it a golden cage of a religion you are you are in a cage so uh, this is the reason why of course i was very happy when you speak about the uh, spirituality spiritual spirituality what uh, what really spirituality is like uh, really the, uh, the your body is the temple and your mind is really the uh, the sangha, the, the the yogi, the practitioner, the like like a, a, a sannyasin, and whoever you know, like a monk and the the nun, female. Uh, if you are a female, the, your 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 mind is the really the nun, and if you are male, the, your mind is the monk. So the temple is of course the Buddha, the the body is your really the temple. So you have to really respect that way. I think that is really the beauty of it. And the beauty of Himalayas, I would say, that is one of the reasons why I said this morning that uh, the Himalaya has a really sort of like a, a good reputation, so to speak, uh, to, to, to sort of like uh, they, they have been uh, able to sort of embrace very well uh, all the different religions. <laughs> Uh, uh, very well. I mean, even though maybe there are some uh, some dispute, or I don't know, some of some fanatic people uh, feel quite uh, uncomfortable with the uh, with the other religion and all these things. Of course, it's it's a, we are we are being human beings, so human being has a human human nature. So of course we'll have a problem. But actually, the spirituality is the really the beauty of the Himalaya, and the Himalaya, the beauty of the Himalaya is not only the mountain. And all these things, but of course, uh, to this is what people say: the tourists who who goes there. Oh, the Himalayas are very beautiful and very nice people because they are uh, closer to the God because it's a uh, higher mountain. The mountain is high, so high enough to sort of speak with the God and all these things. But of course, they are. This is being uh, maybe it's I I I listen to these kind of things as a. As a poetry, poet, poet, no, poetry, you know, it's like, it's not true, of course. I don't believe in the God being somewhere high up in the nearby Himalaya. 
I don't believe in that. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, whatever you believe doesn't matter. Whatever I believe doesn't matter. But the spirituality really is really the uh, understanding, understanding of the, uh, the art of embracing each other. That is the thing. And... Um, so uh, back to him, the back back to Himalaya, like uh, for example, like uh, uh, the, the the spirituality, of course, is the beauty. But now the um, education is very much the infrastructure that it's needed, because if the education is not there, then you cannot really understand what is the spirituality, and that's the reason why all the Hindu, all the Muslim, all the Buddhist also now there are many uh, different difficult uh, situation is happening in Burma Burma and uh, many many other places also even the Buddhist people also they uh, they do some uh, some nasty things that is like because of the uh, the, uh, the people are being him uh, being a human being and uh, then caught up with the him uh, fanaticism so therefore education is so important so that's the reason why uh, <coughs> education is so important to keep the spirituality the beauty of the Himalaya and beauty of everybody and also not only that I mean the, to keep the to keep the nature uh, intact for example not to have a uh, like a, what do you call that the uh, cloud burst not to have a <coughs> uh, landsliding and uh, not to have a global warming all these things that depends on very much very much depends upon the human being the human who uh, you know the and depends on the education because of the lack of education we are ignorant how to look how to look after the uh, nature and the nature is not so important for us actually uh, if you are not educated if you are educated means like if you are really sort of spiritual spiritually educated then of course the spiritual educated means that your life needs to be understood and uh, so I'm not I'm, I'm not uh, trying to say that you know all this you have to be educated to be Hindu uh, Hindu uh, to be uh, Buddhism uh, to be to be Buddhist and to be uh, to be Islamic I'm not saying a specific religion, but spiritual means you have to know, you have to educate it enough to know how important to respect everybody, every nature. That is very much the spirituality. So that is the, I would say, it is the very much the beauty of the uh, Himalaya. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Your Holiness, and that, that, that very, very important lesson which you've drawn, the distinction between spirituality and religiosity, and yes, the Himalayas represent that spirituality, and that's really what they will always be remembered for, and that is why people need and keep on going back to them. Uh, we have some very brief, uh, uh, very short time now for quick comments or discussions, just about uh, five minutes because we are running a bit late. Uh, so if there are any uh, quick questions, let us take them. I'll take them in groups. Uh, yes, sir. Please introduce yourself and then uh, ask a question. Uh, thanks, uh, Mr. Chairman. I'm a visiting scholar in the CIC based in NYU. I come from China. So I have a question for uh, your colonist, Jovan. You said that uh, during your speech, uh, you rightly mentioned that Ladakh benefited from the strive of the silk route, while uh, sufferers also from the decline of the silk route. See, nowadays, the Chinese government wants to revive this kind of Asian silk route. 
uh, a lot of investment, a lot of project for Nepal. There will be uh, China uh, Nepal railway. I think in the near future, there are Kodari, there are Kilung, but at the border trade, there are tons. I talked about the uh, India. We have the BCI. We are links the northeast part of India to the south part, southwest part of China through Myanmar and Bangladesh. Uh, we also have some this kind of uh, project. So that my question is that how do you evaluate the future of this kind of new cell group? In fact, we do not call that a new cell group. We call that one belt, one loop. That means cell group economic belt. So that how do you evaluate the future of this belt? And what impact do you think it will have on the Pan-Himalaya region, including Nepal, Bhutan, India, Pakistan, and even China? Actually, that question takes us into the next session, but we'll see what can be done about that here. Yes, ma'am. That's a tough one because uh, technology, I think, can uh, in the rehabilitation of uh, people affected. First of all, uh, if you go um, a step back, uh, technology played a very effective role, in my opinion, in in the efforts to connect people during relief, uh, during the whole uh, rescue and relief operations. Um, going forward, I think. Um, uh, you know, while there is a lot of physical uh, need for building a lot of physical infrastructure again, a lot of homes got destroyed. I think, um, uh, you know, it goes back to my point of using technology to create jobs, to, to create that, uh, the, you know, to make sure that people stick and uh, remain in their own local communities, but have the opportunities globally. I think that will play a very important role. Uh, the third part is uh, going forward. I think this real-time monitoring uh, of the ground truthing that uh, Mr. Moskar mentioned, um, I think, is very imperative. The uh, the ground data uh, using um, latest technology has to be um, has to be encouraged a lot. Um, data at 40,000 feet level, and I'm not referring to the height of the mountains, but at a very high level is not uh, not helping. So a lot of ground data is required. And uh, one of the things I, uh, I I can mention now based on your question is that uh, there is there is a lot of intent to set up um, ground monitoring, real-time monitoring systems uh, with the help of the local community. So I think uh, that will help uh, in sustaining in the long term. Uh, Ken, can I quickly ask you to come? We are discussing the Silk Road more, I think, in this session of strategy, but if you can quickly say two sentences about it. Well, the, the, so the economic well, linkages, the strategic sure. linkages, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's, China has uh, engaged in a uh, significant effort to build infrastructure, build uh, closer trade relations uh, with, its, uh, with its neighbors, both uh, by land, uh, heading into Central Asia, and then uh, obviously, uh, through the Himalayas, as there's uh, constru construction being talked of, of uh, the tunnel to uh, Nepal to, to link the region more closely, and the, 
and there, there, there are concerns of uh, disruption of uh, particular communities uh, and greater concern about uh, what uh, China's strategic aims are through the uh, Silk Road uh, effort, which is different than the original Silk Road, as His Holiness pointed out earlier, which was more of an organically uh, derived uh, area of trade. May, may I ask? I, ask, I wanted to ask His Holiness a, a question. We talked about, you, you spoke uh, very beautifully about the golden cage that uh, so people have uh, uh, around them from, often from religion that sort of sets them apart from others. But I'm, I'm, I wanted to get your sense of whether these devices, whether technology itself can present a kind of uh, golden cage that can separate us as well. And I wanted to was wondering if you might talk about the challenge of, of technological advancement. Do you, uh, d d does what, the challenge that poses to spirituality? Uh, <clears throat> the technologies, for example, mobile and all these things, uh, obviously uh, uh, there are many people, many people in this world speaks very bad about the technologies also. But uh, I mean, maybe there are some uh, uh, the the bad things that happened also happening also because of uh, because of high technology, but just now what I'm saying uh, what, what I would say is that the the, uh, tech, the good thing good thing that really the technology uh, <clears throat> these these uh, gadgets they really did is of course to uh, break through the golden cage. Uh, and uh, now we are really like a, we we can shake hand, uh, not just a physically, but of course uh, through the through the uh, internet and all these things, we can definitely understand each other. This is what I always say that the understanding is something that is a very very crucial, you know, for Hindu to understand the Buddhism, Buddhism to understand Hindu, and the Hindu and the Buddhism both has to understand the Islamic uh, religion and Islamic Islamic people or followers. Have has to understand about the the other religion so therefore they 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 will not be sort of like a killing each other they will not be sort of abusing each other because of understanding so these understanding really the uh, really understanding cause uh, the uh, provides by these internets i mean so therefore internet sometime i see is as a as a great tool to sort of like break through the golden cage, and uh, where is no, you know, the, the we we have no inter internet or we no no way. Then of course we have we we don't we don't understand each other. So that's the reason why we are really like uh, having a lot of problems. The different religion sees each other as an enemy, not as a friend, uh, for long long time, for long 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 generations and generations. So nowadays I think thanks to internet and all these things, I. Th good things about the internet, yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Holiness. Uh, and we're absolutely correctly that uh, technology is an instrument. It depends on us what use we make of it. Uh, and the use, yes, is to get back to the greater spirituality which unites all of us. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Your Holiness. Uh, thank you, Ken. Thank you, Mr. Mauskar. Thank you, Arvind, for sharing this panel with me. It's been a privilege. Uh,